0: One of the most striking images of modern Burmese history is from 2007. Those orange-clad Buddhist monks marching through Myanmar's cities, demanding an end to the military dictatorship. But today, some of the monks are seriously divided. Some even back the military dictatorship that seized power again in early 2021. And those who oppose the junta, cannot bring themselves to support armed resistance. Richard Horsey from the International Crisis Group has written a report on the silence of the monks.
1: Many people, when the coup in Myanmar took place a little over two years ago, expected that the monastic community would be at the forefront of resistance to the coup. There's a long history of the Buddhist Sangha being involved in resistance movements and political movements, all the way from the country's independence movement, beginning of last century, through to the so-called Saffron Revolution of 2008. And so that was the expectation, but it didn't really happen. The monks in Myanmar have been at times engaged. Some monasteries, some individual monks have been engaged on both sides, actually, but the sort of broad-based sangha hasn't uh, emerged as a main force in the anti-coup movement.
0: What really fascinated me about this report uh, that you've done for the International Crisis Group is that um, many monks who were involved in the 2007 Saffron Revolution, I mean, they put their lives and their bodies on the line on the streets 15 years ago, now seem to be supporting The regime, the the coup regime, why?
1: You know, a lot has changed since that time, since 2007. And I think one of the main things is that Myanmar went through a decade of opening, first with a reformist semi-civilian government, and then under the NLD administration of Aung San Suu Kyi. Now, at the beginning of that decade of opening, many in the Sangha and many nationalists in the country were very worried about what opening to the world, a modernization, would do to the traditional status of Buddhism in society. They looked around them, they looked at places like Thailand, and even to an extent Sri Lanka, and they saw democratization and liberalization as bringing not only modernity, but you know creeping secularism. And they felt that this was a threat. And so the main worry, I guess, of the Sangha shifted from being their socioeconomic status under a military regime and, and oppression of, of the monks when they tried to stand by the people and support the people. And it shifted to, you know, was Buddhism going into a period of decline and would Buddhism still be the central pillar of Burman Buddhist society? There was this radical Buddhist nationalist movement which emerged, which, you know, many people outside of Myanmar saw elements of with the violence against the Rohingya Mm. and the hate speech online but far deeper roots there was an effort to you know set up a Buddhist Sunday schools that teach the right interpretations Mm. of religion to kids and they pushed hard for legislation that would protect the status of Buddhism.
0: Yeah this is very interesting Richard because I mean, among the monks who have supported or at least don't oppose the military junta, how much of it is about ideology and how much of it is simply about fear? Well,
1: that's right. I think, you know, the monks are trying very hard to stay in the background on this one. A few have come out, including some prominent monks in support of the military regime. And there are some, including some prominent monasteries and monks who have really been quite vocal and active in the anti-coup movement. But the vast majority just want to stay in the background on this. They don't want to enrage the regime because that is dangerous. The regime controls the security apparatus and they can arrest monks. They can close down monasteries and so on. But also, they don't want to go against public opinion. I mean, public opinion in Myanmar is very clearly and strongly against the coup. And so the monks also don't want to be against public opinion. They rely on the public for donations and support and and, and their survival. So that's why they're kind of Keeping in the background on this
0: one, by and large. We're talking here, by the way, about a very significant group of people. I mean, I think the monastic community is 600,000, so it's a very significant group. Isn't there a problem, though, in the sense that the Buddhist monks, even if they are opposed to the regime, they simply cannot be involved in violent resistance? Isn't this part of their philosophy? And that stops them taking up arms. That stops them getting too involved.
1: I think that's right. For many monks, you know, they look at the resistance movement in Myanmar, the national unity government, the defense militias that have sprung up you know, right across the country, and they find it difficult to support those forces. I mean, firstly, they find it difficult to support the NUG's call for a violent revolution, a defensive war as the NUG puts it. That doesn't sit well with you know, monastic views on, on non-violence and so on. So I think that's very much the case. But also they look at the regime's brutal violence and they don't want to be associated with that either.
0: And what about this question, uh, the role of women, including Buddhist nuns, have had in sidelining the monks?
1: The community of Buddhist nuns in Myanmar are are not by any means uh, as powerful as the monks. There is a very definite distinction. And Myanmar is not one of those Buddhist countries where women can be ordained. So nuns have a sort of second-class status, and and that means they haven't been as influential. But I think the point about the sidelining of the monks is really that the people at the vanguard of this resistance movement and the anti-coup movement Many of them are young people, many young women are involved, and they're pushing a different agenda. They're saying we have to sweep away a lot of the old political orthodoxies. We have to get rid of power hierarchies. We have to get rid of this idea that it's old Buddhist Burman men who determine everything in all institutions. And so there's an element of a generational shift and and an overturning of the old order. And of course, for monks, that's a kind of threat to their status, to see these young women with new ideas, and sometimes very secular ideas, reaching out across not only ethnic, but across religious divides to try and bring in as many people into the movement. And that doesn't sit well with a Buddhist nationalist worldview.
0: Yeah. Isn't there also a question of um, Christians being involved in some of the main resistance groups? Uh, and that kind of sidelines some of the, the Buddhist monks as well. I understand that some of the ethnic minority communities are largely Christian-led
1: Yes. You know, I think this is part of that secular agenda that is quite strong and visible in the resistance. And one of the aspects of that is that the national unity government, the parallel government that was set up by the people elected in the uh, general elections in 2020 that, that could never take up their seats as MPs because of the coup. So these people set up the national unity government. And among the leaders of that national unity government are people from ethnic minority communities, some of whom are Christian. And that's been very effective at moving beyond this kind of Bama majoritarian rule of the country and trying to convince Ethnic minorities that you know they will have a place in this new Myanmar that is being fought for, but it it has alienated others, right? Because they look at the acting president, who's a very respected Chin individual, a Christian, and the Chin are a Christian, a community, and they see this as as an erosion of the status of Burman Buddhists as the natural leaders of the country. And of course, you know, there's a strong symbiosis always in Myanmar between religion and state, between Buddhism and state, and they look for leaders to be patrons of the religion and keep it strong so uh, those kind of elements do send uh, alarm bells to to some of the nationalist monks as well, yes
0: This is the Religion and Ethics Report with Andrew West, I'm speaking with Richard Horsey from the International Crisis Group about its latest report on Burma and Buddhist monks post-coup. Richard, let's talk about the other side, we've been talking about the anti-regime resistance so we know that this community of monks, 600,000 of them is very divided between those who are either anti regime or pro regime or just silent. How has the military junta attempted to co opt some of the monks and their religion?
1: So, the coup leader, uh, the commander in chief, Minong Haying, you know, he portrays himself as a very religious, pious individual. Uh, he's also a very superstitious individual. He's always engaging in kind of yeah, these superstitious rituals, which are kind of linked to Buddhism, but not canonical Buddhism. It's part of the kind of superstition and the practice of religion in Myanmar. And so he does a lot of that kind of thing. He's trying to present himself as a good Buddhist leader, building the largest carved marble Buddha figure in the world, this huge towering structure in the capital. He often patronizes leading monks and you know, really tries to show himself as a, as a supporter and defender of the faith. Uh, You know, I don't think this is going to wash with most of the population. But it is uh, something that I think all Myanmar leaders have felt they kind of have to do to keep the monkhood on side and thereby keep the Buddhist population on side. So he does an awful lot of that. But what he hasn't really done so far is try to use Buddhist nationalist tropes as a way to energize some support for the coup. And I think part of the reason for that is that he's a bit distrustful of some of the Buddhist nationalists as well. They are demagogues to a certain extent, some of them. They are rabble-rousers, some of them. I'm talking of people like the monk uh, Wirathu here, uh, who you may remember featured on the cover of Time magazine some years back as Mm -hmm. the Burmese bin Laden. Associating with these kind of people is risky because they won't necessarily do what they're told, and their aim is to be populist, not to be popular with the military as such. The bottom line is the military in Myanmar is just not popular now. It doesn't have a popular support base following the coup and the, the terrible violence that it's unleashed. And so he, he's, he's so far kind of shied away from attempting to instrumentalize Buddhist nationalists
0: behind him. Yeah. When I look at this report that you've done, I see echoes here, and correct me if I'm, I'm wrong, of the sort of China model when it comes to religion. You tolerate, you regulate, you infiltrate, and then you control religion. I mean, how much of that is the modus operandi of this government, particularly in the way that they fund the sort of peak Buddhist council?
1: Yeah there's certainly an, an attempt to co-opt monks through large donations and they appoint the Sangha Council, which is supposed to be the peak body for regulating the Sangha and Sangha discipline. It's always been the case that, uh, or at least in, in, in recent decades that the Sangha Council was, was appointed by the government. I think what's changed is that this regime has so little legitimacy as any kind of government that any association between them and the Sangha Council, doesn't boost their legitimacy, it undermines any legitimacy that the Sangha Council may have. And so for most monks, for most Siadors who, who run the individual monasteries, you know they put up with the Sangha Council, but they certainly don't look to it for guidance or see it as a body with religious authority. And so that means that most decisions are actually taken by individual
0: monasteries. Just finally, Richard, uh, we did mention just in passing the uh, situation, the plight of the Rohingya Muslims driven out in large measure of Myanmar. How does the crisis of the Rohingya actually complicate the situation for those who are opposed to the regime?
1: Well, it's a very tricky problem because, uh, you know, the NLD government that was ousted in the coup was no uh, backer uh, of the Rohingya. On their watch, albeit not their responsibility, but on their watch, the military undertook this brutal ethnic cleansing campaign. And the NLD administration went to the International Court of Justice in The Hague and defended the military's actions in the genocide case brought by uh, the Gambia. And so many members of the NUG, the National Unity Government, who have an NLD background, you know, are on the record saying things about the Rohingya that don't sit well with liberal views among the Generation Z and millennial people who are really driving the resistance on the ground, and certainly don't sit well with the international community. So there's been an effort to kind of change tack on this. And to some extent, the NUG is doing better than the NLD in the past. It has spoken out about the Rohingya. It has more proactive policies. It has one Rohingya advisor, not member of the NUG, but advisor to the NUG. So it's trying, but it's it's a small step. And I don't think anything that would really convince the Rohingya that their fortunes have completely changed. And of course, uh, for those who are in Bangladesh, the majority of the Rohingya from Myanmar, uh, the prospects of return now seem more distant than ever when it's the architect of their ethnic cleansing that is now in full charge of, well, not in full charge of the country, but but the ones who are running the security forces.
0: Richard Horsey from the International Crisis Group. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.